Heavenly Father, as we look at these words written by Matthew all those years ago, they're not easy words, and, but Lord, we do want to see you at work through them in the way that you protected your son before his ministry even begun. And so we pray, Father, that you would be with us tonight and we pray you'd hear your words clearly. Amen. Right. Um, if, uh, if you can't hear me at any time, because I'm losing my voice, just wave and I'll try and do something about it. Uh, Richard has titled this uh, sermon, Return of the King. Return of the King. And perhaps that is quite a good title for this time of the year. Because we've had Christmas, we've had the joy of Christmas, we've had the joy of families perhaps and all the activities that have taken place. And now we're into the new year and uh, we're now looking towards the future, which is what this... uh, This title is actually saying, The Return of the King. The King hadn't come back yet, it's looking to the future. Now, of course, none of us knows what the future will hold. We don't know what's going to happen in 2018. We're not on a personal level, whether that's our health, our wealth, our jobs, or study. We don't know what's going to happen to our country and the world in which we live. But we can be encouraged because we have promises from God that Jesus will return a second time, as promised in the New Testament. However, we've seen in these last few weeks that God was at work fulfilling his plan for the future. His plan for saving of mankind and restoring relationships between God and mankind. And of course we saw that over Christmas through the birth of the baby Jesus and through the supernatural events that took place, the uh, coming of the angels to Mary and Joseph and Zachariah to name just three. And now we're looking at what is the result of this. If you see this map here, the journey that the, uh, Joseph and Mary and the young baby are going to take into Egypt and then coming back. Well, in tonight's gospel message, uh, Matthew 2, verses 13 to 23, we have a continuation of how God brought his plan of salvation to the world. And, of course, we see that through the life and the presence of Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew's gospel, this first gospel that we find in the New Testament, was written by a Jewish man for the traditional Jewish people who worshipped their God, Yahweh. And Matthew links up between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's Jewish, it's written for Jewish readers, and it has great interest in the fulfillment of prophecies, especially uh, as he expects to be able to persuade the Jewish readers by it. 
And so we see in Matthew's Gospel here many references to these prophecies. And he makes it clear to us that Jesus didn't just appear on the scene sort of somewhat unexpectedly. No, all along God has been laying the groundwork for the coming of his Messiah. The surprise is then perhaps not that the Messiah has come, but rather that he has come in such a humble manner. But through this we can see that God has a plan and fulfills it. And so as we come to our passage tonight, we see that not only God has a plan that's progressing, but here we meet the first opposition to God's plan in the form of one man, Herod, the political ruler of the kingdom in which Jesus is found. So what can we actually say about this passage? What can we draw from it for ourselves tonight? Because as I say, it's not the easiest of passages talking about the killing of baby boys, for instance. Well, there are three points that I would like to make uh, tonight from this passage, three points. Firstly, the first one is this, that God's plan of salvation is a continuation of the Old Testament teaching and prophecy. It's a continuation of what has actually been happening through the Old Testament. We see that with the references in our passage tonight to the Old Testament. We see the linkages here. Look at verses 13 through to 15 with the references to Egypt. Now Egypt, the pictures of Egypt can be seen at different levels. Yes, Joseph, Mary and the baby Jesus were to flee to Egypt for safety. Egypt was approximately 90 miles away, which if you were walking would have taken you some time. But most importantly, of course, for this account is that the the Egypt was outside the jurisdiction of Herod. He had no power there, so he couldn't kill the baby Jesus there. And this is a continuation, again, from the Old Testament. Because within the Old Testament, we see that Egypt is seen both as a safe haven and a place of slavery. So there's a contrast there, isn't it? It's a place of safety, but it's a place of slavery as well. And it's geographically relatively close to Israel. As I said, about 90 miles. But there's other ways that we can actually look at this. Because of the hundreds of years ago, God's people had gone to Egypt to escape the effects of hunger, drought, and famine. If you remember that account that we, uh, we read of in the Old Testament of Joseph, who was sold into slavery. But we saw that though Joseph was sold into slavery, he rose to become the saviour of his people. Because he got into a position where he was able to sell them grain when they came looking for food. So that's the first one. But secondly, we see also, of course, the account of Moses, who was brought up in the court of Egypt. Moses, who would lead his people out from slavery, 
Remember the people of Israel had become slaves within the country when the Pharaoh had changed. And then we had the whole process of exodus with the saving of the nation of Israel by God as he led them out of Egypt and across the desert. And I think we can see a resonance here, can't we? That between Jesus as God's saviour, who will come out of Egypt and become the saviour of his people. And we see this again with reference to prophetic words by Jeremiah in verse 18, and in verse 23 with the general reference to prophetic words found in the Old Testament concerning the fact that Jesus will be brought up in Nazareth. And so we have here then, within this account, a connection between the people of God of Old Testament times through to God's plan of salvation through his Messiah. We see that God is in control of this terrible situation and is in control of history. And as I was thinking of that and thinking about 2018 and all that we are hearing on the world news particularly about some of the leaders making bizarre statements, we can take comfort that God has a plan and he fulfills this plan through the birth and the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. But we can be encouraged that this plan will carry on throughout history until Jesus returns a second time to judge the living and the dead. So that's my first point then. God is continuing his plan of salvation. Second point. We see here that God's plan depends upon the obedience of his people. Look at verses 13 and 14 again. See what it says. The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child, mother, and escape to Egypt. And then in verse 14, So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt. Now, these statements are fairly abrupt, aren't they? Because the writer is rather sketchy on the detail concerning this event. He writes that another angel appears to Joseph in the night and gives him a warning concerning the safety of the baby and the family and an instruction on what they are to do. It's all rather matter of fact, isn't it? We don't know what Joseph thought, what Joseph felt like, what was his feelings when he was confronted by an angel again. Was he frightened by the angel or the message? Did he doubt whether this was an angel or did he think he was just having a bad dream? We just don't know. But I ask you to try to imagine, use your imagination to get yourselves into this situation. Because how would we have felt? Imagine the event if uh, we woke up and told our partners or wives or husbands or family that we'd seen an angel who told us to get up and leave the country. It's quite a thing, isn't it? But we are told what he responds to these instructions. Look again at verse 14. Again, there's very little detail given here. What Was there a discussion, for instance, between Joseph and Mary? 
Try to imagine the situation. Joseph gets up from bed and he tells Mary that he has had a dream and the result of which is a warning. He's heard this angel saying that the safety of the baby and the family is at risk. Now we know, of course, that culturally within Israel at this time that the wives would be expected to obey their husbands. But I wondered, how would Mary have actually felt? How would my wife feel if I said an angel told us that we had to leave and go to a separate land? Was there a request by Mary to wait and see? Maybe to wait until at least it was light, because this would have been totally reasonable as travelling on foot with a new baby would have been dangerous and difficult. No, all that we read is that Joseph took action and the lead within his family. He immediately got up and taking his family with him, he left to walk the distance to Egypt, about 90 miles, probably about a week's walk. Now, of course, Joseph wouldn't have known what the journey would, be, would entail. What would it be like to be in Egypt? What dangers would they face on the road? Historically, we know that at this time there were groups of Jewish people actually living in Egypt. There were sort of like colonies of Jewish people living there. So perhaps that is where they actually headed for, for one of these groups of Jewish people. But we do see here in this account, that Joseph shows complete trust and obedience to the message sent by God. He completes the task sent to him. He gives up the comfort of home, the friendship and family, and sets out for this new land and new life. And so we see here, I think, through through this passage, that for God's plan to work, for his king to return, there needs to be obedience by his servant, Joseph. And although it's difficult for us to actually perhaps identify with this type of account, we can uh, take a general principle here, though, can't we? That we need, God needs us to be obedient. We know that God is God if we are a follower of Jesus. God is all-powerful, all-knowing. Therefore, he can fulfill his plan for Norwich today without our assistance. However, throughout the Bible, we read that God chooses to use his people who are obedient to his call for his kingdom to be established here on earth. And so we see that God works through his followers for his plan of salvation to be offered to all. And so can I suggest to us here tonight that uh, for God's plan for Norwich, for this parish, this church's work in 2018, it's going to depend upon his people, both hearing God's call, being humble, obedient, and willing to step out in faith, whatever God calls us to do this year. Joseph is a good example for us to follow. God worked through the obedience of Joseph, and God still today depends upon the obedience of his people. But thirdly, we see here 
the first of the opposition to God's plan of salvation. Now, through the period of Christmas, we've seen how God intervenes into the world, how God sends his angels to instruct Joseph, Mary, and Zachariah concerning his plan, the plan of the birth of Jesus and John the Baptist. We have celebrated the rejoicing of the shepherds, the worship of the wise men. All was going well with God's plan. But now, in this passage, we're introduced to the first of the opposition to his plan. We see how evil entering the account of Jesus' birth. Within Matthew's gospel, evil constantly stands in opposition to the purpose of God as seen through the life of Jesus. And here we read that the opposition comes from a powerful man, King Herod, who was insecure and demonstrates the effect of sin within within his life. I think it's perhaps difficult for us in our day and age to understand what it must have been like to live under the influence of someone like King Herod. King Herod had the power to kill, kill his people. We don't live with that, or very few of us do. We do in some parts of the world. But here in this part of Israel, Herod had this type of power. And so we see that he was an insecure, evil man. And this opposition reflects the work and nature of the evil one. So look again at verse 13 and 15. Herod has stated to the wise man that he wanted to go and worship the baby like they, they did. Clearly, here's a lie. Herod was so insecure concerning his position that he wanted to get rid of any possible alternative or rival, a rival to be a king of the Jews. We know this from history, that this wasn't out of character. Herod was known as a ruthless king who got rid of any possible contenders for the throne. This included his own members of his own family. He killed people that he thought were going to be a threat to him. And, in so, and, and we see this several times. And in fact, this killing of uh, boys in Bethlehem, the uh, commentators think, is a relatively small number, and it was small meat for, for Herod. But his behavior shows us, doesn't it, evidence of the evil one, the father of lies, the devil, who opposed the coming of Jesus as savior to the world. Because here we see that the devil wants to prevent mankind having a relationship with God. The devil wants to oppose Jesus, who through his teaching and actions will go on to teach us how we can come into God's kingdom. So this is serious stuff. Because if the devil can destroy Jesus before he grows into a man and starts his ministry, he will have won even before the plan has gone off the ground, so to speak. Such is the seriousness of the situation that God provides a way of escape for the family of Jesus. They go to Egypt. 
God has provided for that family. We've had the gifts given by the Magi, which would have provided wealth for them to actually make that journey. Of course, it won't prevent hardship and pain for the family, but God will be with them. We've seen this, as I said, through the wealthy gifts that the Magi provided for them. So we see here that God is providing and overcoming the opposition. God shows us here that he's ahead of the game. He provides a way for his son to be saved and kept safe. Which is wonderful, of course. Now, I don't know what you think about this as you read this account and as you think about you know, these boys being killed by Herod. And it's a real problem, isn't it? This doesn't answer the difficult question. Why did God save the baby Jesus and not all the rest of the baby boys found in the region of Bethlehem? It's a problem, isn't it? Why does God allow difficult situations in life, whether that be illness, persecution, to name just two? It's a real and important question for all of us and is often raised by those who are seeking to understand and accept the Christian gospel. Well, I believe it comes down to our understanding of the nature of the fallen world in which we are a part. The world where sin entered when mankind wanted to be in charge of their own lives and disobey God. When God created mankind, he gave humanity the freedom of choice to make up our own minds and what we do. And this, of course, is one of the characteristics that makes us different from the rest of the animal kingdom. Now, we see this, of course, in the Genesis account in the first few chapters and in subsequent behavior of mankind. And we read throughout the Old Testament how God calls out to his people to repent of their actions, their lack of obedience to his ways, and to come back to him so that they may have a relationship with him. Now, of course, God is God, and God could have made Herod not to kill the boys. But then he would have taken away the human condition of choice. He would have gone against his own acts of creation. And so we have this sad interlude in this story. But it goes on into, into further on into the gospel because Jesus warns his followers to expect opposition. He warns them to be expected to be treated like he had been. And we know that many of the disciples were killed for their faith. And it's important for us to realize that if we follow Jesus and proclaim that Jesus is the only way for us to come to God, there will be opposition from the world in which we live. It may be in our cases, in our country, just disapproval. It may not be politically correct. Or it might take the form of much more active persecution, which is, of course, what we are seeing today in countries like Egypt, Syria, where Christians are facing serious persecution. But even if we don't face persecution, we can support those brothers and sisters in prayer, bringing their situation to the knowledge 
of our political leaders and so bringing pressure upon those governments. So how are we going to finish this then? Well, it's not an easy passage, is it, for us to read after the joy of Christmas. It's not easy. But it does show us that despite the presence of evil within the world, God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ for all people was protected by God and was the product of God's action and the obedience of Joseph. They eventually came back. Again, we have angels in the account of telling them when it's safe to come back to their country. So, what can I, how can I finish? Well, can I just encourage each one of us that if we are obedient to God's call upon our lives, that God will be with us right to the end. And God will provide as long as we rely on him. Amen.